Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest is a world-renowned expert on innovation, disruption, and hypergrowth leadership. He is the author of four books, including two New York Times bestsellers, and he's mentored over 100 startups as a founding partner of Detroit Venture Partners. He's been the founder and CEO of five successful tech companies and was awarded the United States Presidential Champion of Change Award. We're excited to welcome a five-time tech entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, and creative troublemaker, Josh Linkner. Josh, it's great to see you. Thank you for being with me today. My pleasure. You know, I was reflecting in preparing for this interview that you and I have known each other for really two decades now, about 20 years or so. So we've got a lot we could talk about here and looking forward to sharing so much of your success and insights with our podcast audience. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be with you. And I'm such a fan of yours. And it's amazing. You know, you're sort of a sense and not only your commercial success, but more importantly, the impact that you're making in so many people's lives. So again, I'm very grateful to be with you today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Well, Josh, you've had success in so many different areas in entrepreneurship, as an author, as a speaker, as an incubator of other businesses, as a thought leader. Definitely would like to talk about all those things. Tell us a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about what led you to where you are today. Uh, thank you. So a little bit about me. I'm a jazz musician. I started my career as a jazz guitarist and I've been playing for 40 years, believe it or not. And that's my real passion. I like creating things out of nothing. I like the danger of improvising through the unknown and jazz, whether people listen to it or not, it's a really cool art form. It's the one art form that I know of where you are sort of composing and performing simultaneously. You're not like a painter where you can go back and make a retouch. And so to me, that's really was very instructive, actually, as I entered the business world. Now I help build companies and such, but it still feels like I'm playing jazz just with different instruments. And just rounding that out, I grew up in the city of Detroit. I was born in the city, not the suburbs. And a proud Detroiter still live in the area. And the only other thing I would say is that I just kind of like being a troublemaker. People always ask me, what do you do? Like, you know, at a party or whatever. And I just say nowadays, I'm a creative troublemaker which always begins a great conversation. And I say that playfully, of course, I don't like doing harm, of course not, but I like being provocative and I like challenging conventional wisdom and sort of defying traditions to discover new possibilities. So what is an example of where you've been a creative troublemaker? I think a number of places. I started a company in 1999 where you and I got to know each other. It was just called ePrize. We designed, built, and ran digital promotions for large brand advertisers. And at the time, the whole world of promotions was largely dormant online. It was an offline business. And we went in there and there were these old school relationships. Imagine like wooden desks and Windsor knots and that kind of thing, you know, two hour lunches with martinis. And we went in there with a really fresh perspective, new technology, a digital first approach. And we really dislodged a lot of sleeping giants. And to a degree, they were not pleased, but we did shake things up and not just for our benefit, but frankly, for the benefit of the clients that we serve. And so in that case, I liked kind of bucking the system and taking on traditions and, and reimagining and rethinking that industry. Well, it was pretty incredible what you did. And I remember even when we were talking about even the earliest stages of that company and the concept of it. And it was very disruptive in the industry at that time. And I remember even talking about, gosh, what could get in the way? What's the competition of this? And you continue to build it over time. It was a huge success, but you also had some challenges that you faced along the way. Talk about some of those. 
plentiful. In fact, you know, when you look at people that have enjoyed some success, I've had a little bit of my own. There's always those ups and downs. And on the outside, someone who's successful, you think that they just had some magical idea in the shower and they walk out and there's a limousine waiting for them to whisk them off to fame and fortune. And really there's much more ups and downs and nuance to most success stories, mine certainly included. And we had tons of setbacks. Here's a good example. So I started the company, I raised some venture capital. Our venture capitalists at the time agreed to an additional $3 million investment into the business, verbal agreement. So based on their commitment, I went out and hired more people, secured more office space and placed expensive ads. And this was right when the dot-com crash was happening. So then I get this call. Hey, Josh, you know that $3 million we talked about? Listen, we decided to get out of the venture capital business. So nothing against you, but we're not going to fund that, but don't take it personally. So for me, I took it personally. And in fact, more so than myself, but I had 40 families that were relying on this business and we had, you know, dreams on the line. In our case, we just said like, we're going to keep fighting until they drag us out of here dead. And that was a tough stretch for a couple of months. Every morning we started at 7 a.m. Every night we ended at two in the morning, like seven days a week. And we were frantically trying to save the company, doing everything we possibly could, trying to line up new investors, trying to buy out the old ones. And I have to say, it came down to a very, very close call. It was a Friday afternoon, and I will never forget this day. It was the day that our entire company's team meeting was scheduled to happen. But the problem was, that was also the day that payroll was to be paid. And I woke up that morning, I had already done every trick I knew. Like I stretched out vendors and I was done. Like we had $0 in our bank account. I was getting close with some new investors, but I wasn't there yet. And so I literally woke up that morning and prepared two speeches. This is what I'm going to say to my company, my team members, my friends, if we save the company, and this is what I'm going to say if we lose it. And I'm not exaggerating, 15 minutes before the entire company was bankrupt, dead bolted, uh, you know, the doors, dreams shattered. We got money from these new investors. And I walked in and sweating and exhausted. And I said, friends, we saved the company. It sounds more heroic than it was. Frankly, it was irresponsible that I let it get that far. And I actually changed my leadership style as a result of that. I never wanted to be in that position again. So sometimes our most painful setbacks, in retrospect, even though they were painful at the time, become our biggest insights and moments of growth and discovery. Well, it's an incredible story. It truly is something that sometimes people don't realize. They don't see it. They see the success. They don't see all the challenges. You said you changed your leadership style. What did you learn and what did you change? One is to the extent that I could, there's always unknowns in life and business, but I wanted to say, okay, can I not rely on others as much? Can I make sure that I'm fortified and I'm not sort of getting over my ski tips as the saying goes? And so, yeah, we've said, okay, profits first. We're going to make sure even if we have to throttle back on growth, unless we have the resources in the bank to be able to accelerate, we're going to be a little bit more conservative. P.S. I was still pretty growth oriented, but again, I just, I didn't want to jeopardize not just myself and my family, but those families that I cared so much about. Back to your question too about earlier on and change and such, it reminded me of another quick story. So our biggest competitor at the time, there was this company and they were called D.L. Blair. They were this old school company in New York somewhere. And for 25 years in a row, they had the Coca-Cola account. They did all the promotions for Coca-Cola. And these were exactly what you'd imagine as old school, like come in at 10, take a two hour lunch, leave at four, no energy or vibe. So we approached them about partnering with them and they were very dismissive and all that. So we're hustling and we're hustling. And they put out an ad in the trade journals and it was in black and white. And it said the following, I'm not kidding. It said this, a lot of things have changed since 1959. We're not one of them. D.L. Blair. And I think the point of their ad was to show, you know, stability and security and purpose and all that. What do we do? We photocopied the ad and put it all over our office. And we're like, oh yeah, game on baby. And so one day after 25 years of service, they get a letter from the Coca-Cola corporation. 
Dear friends at DL Blair, we're sorry to inform you that despite your years of service, we've decided to go hire this little teeny company in Detroit. So thanks, but you know, that's the end of it. Of course, I was proud of that. Like in the moment, we're a slap on I-5. But that also was instructive because I said, you know, it's more fun being the disruptor than the disruptee. And I saw how easy that 25-year relationship had gone because D.L. Blair took Coca-Cola for granted. And I said to myself at the same time, I don't want to be in that situation either. So therefore, I'm going to treat every client opportunity like it's a fresh interview that I have to keep fighting to keep their business rather than taking it for granted. And what does that look like when you actually talk about servicing the client? You put the customer at the center of everything you do. What did you do differently? How did you demonstrate that caring for the client? I learned something originally from Jack Welch in an interview, famous CEO of General Electric, included it in my new book. It's called uh, Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results. And it's a phrase that I've now refined a bit. It's called, don't forget the dinner mint. Don't forget the dinner mint. So Jack Welch originally said, hey, if you want to get promoted in any company, here's all you got to do. Number one, whatever your boss asks you to do, do it with precision and make sure you fulfill on the expectations. And number two, always deliver a little something extra plus it up with a teeny bit. If they asked you for five things, come back with six. If they said, put it in black and white, bring it back in color. Just get in the habit of delivering with precision and plussing it up. And so my strategy, don't forget the dinner mint is an evolved from that original concept. That's how I kept my clients happy. So I would say, okay, what are their expectations? And I had to deliver on those to be clear, but competence is not a competitive advantage. I mean, I'll say it again, competence is just not a competitive advantage. Those are table stakes. So then I said, okay, every time I deliver something, can I plus it up? Can I add a 2% extra? Can I add 1% more creativity? Can I over-deliver in teeny regard, that little dinner mint, as I call it? And that's what kept our clients loyal, I think, is that we delivered with intention and accuracy, but we're always trying to plus it up with a little extra something. And I'm reading Big Little Breakthroughs right now, and I'm really enjoying it. I got to tell you, I love the writing and the style. It's very easy to read. Part of your idea in this book is that sometimes people think that innovation is this massive, you know, huge thing. And at the same time, it's that small idea, that little thing that can lead to the big breakthroughs. And it sounds like that's exactly what you were talking about, even as you were talking about servicing your clients. 100%. And human creativity is my passion. Like I might even go as far as to say my calling. And I just feel like there are 7 billion people walking around this planet, me included, that to one degree or another have dormant creative capacity. So the answers to the most vexing challenges are inside us already. And if I can help people bring it out, bring it to the surface, because truly we are all creative as human beings, regardless if you paint on canvas or you play an instrument, we all can be creative in our own ways. And I feel that if we can bring that to the surface, the outcomes that we care about the most improve, whether it's business outcomes or healthcare outcomes or education outcomes or social justice or environment or anywhere in between. So my premise of this new book is exactly that, that we often think of innovation as these giant moonshots. Like it only counts if it's a billion dollar idea or if it changes the world. And when the stakes are that high, we gravitate to doing nothing. So I think the idea of sort of democratizing it and encouraging people, instead of the once a decade swing for the fences idea, cultivate high velocity, high volume micro innovations, little baby ideas. I call them big little breakthroughs. And when we do that, it's so much better. In my mind, it's a more pragmatic approach because it's way more accessible it doesn't only apply to the CEO. Anyone can come up with a big little breakthrough. It's less risky by far. You're not betting your life on every decision. It builds critical skills. So the more little ideas you come up with, the more likely you'll get to the big ones. And those little babies add up. So to me, I think that we all have the capacity to drive innovation one baby step at a time. So how would you encourage someone? You talk about bringing this up to the surface and everyone's got this potential, but maybe people aren't doing that or don't know how to do it. Where do they start? 
that's exactly the question I tried to answer in this new book. And I spent over a thousand hours in researching everything from neuroscience and academic journal research to interviews with CEOs and celebrity entrepreneurs and billionaires, even Grammy award-winning musicians. And I said, okay, can we take the squishy topic of human creativity that just feels like it only exists with a lightning bolt from the heavens? And can we actually break it down into a manageable process? What do the best of the best do and what can we learn from them? So the book really covers the habits the mindsets and the tactics of the most innovative people on the planet. So answering the question, what can we do? I think we have to examine all three of those. You know, what are our habits? What are our mindsets? And what are the tactics that we use? And that's exactly what I cover in the book. But the first step to answer your question directly is, I think the first step is recognizing a couple of things. Number one, that all human beings are creative. And the research is crystal clear that we are hardwired to be creative. That's our natural state doesn't matter if you were good in art in third grade or you have a good singing voice. We can all be creative in our own ways, whether you're a dentist or a lawyer or a sales professional. The second thing we need to recognize is that creativity is everybody's job. It's not relegated only for those wearing a lab coat or a hoodie. And if we can find ways to be creative in our job, even if there's regulatory burden, we can still find ways to be creative. That's another step in the right direction. And the third thing is recognizing that if we deploy our creativity, the outcomes that we care about the most, whether it's driving more economic gain, or whether it's taking care of our kids or our community will improve. And so I think once we have that recognition, that's the first step. Now we're like, okay, cool. Let's get on with this. So there's things that we can do to unlock that creativity. What are things that we can do to help other people? If we're leading a team and we want to have more creativity in our company or our team, where do we start with that? So the first thing we need to do is look at what are the conditions that we're creating? Are we creating conditions that are optimal that will allow creativity to flourish? Or are we creating conditions that it will suppress creativity? Think about a greenhouse for a second. Those are optimal conditions for plants to grow. So as leaders, I think it's a core responsibility of ours to create optimal conditions for creativity to grow. The first step is removing fear. Fear, not natural talent. Fear is the single biggest blocker of creative output. It's that poisonous force that robs us of our best thinking. So if you as a leader can create a safe environment where all ideas are celebrated and cherished, good, the bad, and the ugly, you're going to liberate the creative capacity of your team. And a real practical example is this, you know, you're a busy executive, Joe, and like, let's say someone comes to you with an idea and it's a bad idea. If you respond by saying, hey, that's a terrible idea, go back to your cube. You've just trained that person to never come up with another idea again. I'm certainly not suggesting that you pander to them and say it's a good idea, but it's not. I'm just saying, have a judgment-free conversation. You might say, huh, tell me more about that idea. How'd you come up with it? What could you add to it to make it even better? So now the person goes back to their desk feeling heard and understood and validated. They might come back with four more bad ideas in a row, but so what? Because they may show up one day with the killer idea, the game-changing idea, the idea that drives revenue by 30% next year that would have never come to the surface if you created a fear-based culture. So many leaders, they put these platitudes on the wall. We love innovation. When it doesn't go perfectly, people are sent to corporate timeout. So I think, you know, establishing a safe environment. And the way we really do that is through rituals. One ritual is a company that I work with every year, they issue a failure of the year award. They celebrate other stuff like the team member of the year, but this is for the team or individual that had a great idea. Their numbers made sense. They went for it. It didn't work out at all. But instead of getting fired, they get a standing ovation. People are clapping and cheering and slapping high five. Way to fail. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that we aim at failure, but think about the message that sends to those team members. One other quick one is that one of the people that I interviewed in the book, an amazing leader, every Friday they have F up Fridays. He says the whole word. I'll just be polite here, but F up Fridays. He brings his whole company together for a big brown bag lunch. And one by one, people have to stand up individually and share what did they F up last week 
and what did they learn from it? And then when they get to somebody inevitably that didn't have something up, they're like, well, why not? What are you going to try next week? And again, think about that simple ritual and the message that it sends to those team members that taking responsible risks is part of your job. We are counting on you to be an innovator. And when you have the inevitable setback, we will support you as much in failure as we do in success. So a simple ritual like that, Joe, can completely transform a team from being creatively repressed to being creatively liberated. I love what you're saying, Josh. And what you're talking about really goes to culture and the culture that leaders set and the way that leaders... And not just the senior leaders, but really leaders throughout the organization. How do we treat people? If you're in a meeting and someone has an idea, as you said, do you shut that down? Do you entertain it? Do you try to find out what might be underneath that? So this creation of the environment is such a critical part of this whole process. Any other tips on things that you've seen that are successful in that process? Yeah, I think what we want to do is sort of reverse engineer rituals that support our desired outcome of more creativity. Just another example, one company that I work with, they wanted to have people show up with as many ideas as they could come up with, but they also didn't want people to feel discouraged because first of all, practically they couldn't embrace all the ideas and some of them weren't ideal, you know? So here's what they did. They created a visual cue, big corporate company, you know, fortune 500 kind of thing in their central headquarters in a very visible hallway. They got these four feet tall jars, glass jars. Every time an idea came in from their idea collection system, company-wide, they would drop a white marble in there. Every time an idea was embraced, they put a red marble in. Again, low tech, but they saved these jars. And so now there's this long wall that is a sea of white with little specks of red. So it's a visual cue that's encouraging people, hey, keep the ideas coming. We love all the ideas. And it takes a lot of white ones to get to a red one. Don't be discouraged. So I think that the more we can think about rituals and rewards that support the desired outcome, the better the results will be. We reap what we reward, the things that we recognize are the things that we see. So a great reminder for all of us as leaders. Speaking of leadership, Josh, you throughout your career, you've started a number of businesses, you've sold them, you've had a lot of success, you've worked with leaders around the world. How do you define leadership and what are some of the key traits you see in the greatest leaders? Well, it's such a great question. And I know you obviously are an expert in this topic. I would say that leadership, to define it, it's setting a vision, you know, where are we heading? It's giving people the opportunity to contribute to that vision as opposed to you know, just managing them to follow orders. It's giving them a, a voice and a part of the process. It's caring deeply about those and feeling that your job is more of a servant. How do you upskill and uplift those around you as opposed to you, know, you taking all the credit and such? You're sort of in the business as a leader of elevating others and your rewards come, in my opinion, as a direct result. Yeah, if we can bring out the best in other people, clearly that's the job of leaders is to create other leaders. And I know you've done that and I've seen you do that over decades. And has there been anyone in your life that you've looked at who's really inspired you from a position of leadership? Anyone that you've worked with or someone who set a pattern for you? Yeah, so I spent a lot of years working with Dan Gilbert, who is famously known for owning the Cleveland Cavaliers and, and Rocket Mortgage. And you know he has an enormous range. He can zoom way out and have the most broad visionary conversation, but then he can zoom right into the details. And you know his ability to not let up on the throttle was always very impressive. But the person who I actually admire more is an entrepreneur that we backed. And it's funny, I've made a lot of startup investments. I ran a venture capital fund called Detroit Venture Partners for many years. You know, what type of entrepreneur should you invest in? And you think, oh, I want to invest in someone like Steve Jobs, someone who is gregarious and like fills the room and they're charismatic and, you know, they're loud and very passionate. I learned actually that entrepreneurs that have opposite skills are better. 
Not that Steve Jobs wasn't great, but he maybe was an anomaly. To me, the best entrepreneurs are those that are humble and open-minded and sometimes soft-spoken and who are execution-focused as well as visionary. And they are willing to go in there and do the work and they don't need to take all the credit. So the one that I wanted to just showcase is a fellow Detroit entrepreneur named Greg Schwartz. Greg came into my office in 2011 or so, and I loved him. I didn't love his idea. So I said, hey, would you be open-minded to us, like kind of workshopping this together? And he's like, oh my God, absolutely. So the first meeting, I sort of rejected his primary idea. And he's like, awesome, let's do this together. And I ended up backing his company, which didn't actually work out that well, but it pivoted into something new. And that something new became called StockX. So StockX is the most valuable tech company in Michigan, to my knowledge, pure tech company. StockX is now valued at over $3.8 billion. And Greg is the co-founder and chief operating officer. So the thing I admire about him, though, is not his remarkable success, although I think that's awesome. He is the most sweet, humble, sincere, mindful person. He cares about others. It's never about him and his ego. And so unlike many of these other braggish leaders, he's the one that's there to support others. He puts himself second. And I believe, in fact, that that attitude has had a direct correlation to his remarkable success. So Greg Schwartz is one that I admire deeply. Yeah, it's ironic too, though, because a lot of people think about leaders as being hard driving and focused, and many times they are, and yet some of the greatest leaders are those who have this humility to reach out to others, to trust others, to bring out the best in others. It sounds like that's what you saw in Greg. You know, I've been thinking about this and I'd love to run this by you, but you're right. The old vision of a good leader is step on someone's neck to get ahead. You know, that kind of thing. It's like a combat sport. But I think the best leaders today are a fusion of compassion and intensity. So if you're all compassion, but you're, you know, tight eyes and hugging trees or whatever, maybe you don't get anything done. If you're all intensity, I don't think that that is going to work so well either because you're going to have low morale and high turnover and, and all these other things. But the intersection of compassion and intensity to me is a really cool sweet spot. And I can actually think that's the right formula for modern leadership. Well, it seems like that's also kind of where you are right now. You're passionate. I've known you, you're passionate. You're intense about a lot of different things. And speaking of which, you know, what is exciting you right now? What are you really focused on in your current work? As mentioned, I feel like I'm on this mission to help people become more creative. And it sounds like I'm going to encourage people to run down the hall and draw on the walls with purple crayons. It's not that at all. It's to bring creativity to the surface to drive meaningful outcomes. You know, think about all the outcomes that we crave in this world, whether it's better business outcome or getting a promotion that we want or, or making more money to take better care of our kids or get them into a different school. Or maybe it's more broad speaking that we care about things like racial justice or equality, or we care about, you know, diversity, or we care about the environment or religion, whatever is important to each of us individually. I just view that the fundamental, if you go right to the root cause, the way we solve the most vexing problems is through human creativity. And so if I can help people bring those skills that we, again, have natural capacity for, if we can help people develop those skills, the world is just a better place. I know it sounds like all Pollyanna, like a Hallmark card, but I really believe it, man. And, And the thing I've learned is that creativity, it's really more like your weight than your height. So, you know, we've been together in the same room and, you know, I'm a short dude, like try as I may, I'm not gonna grow a foot by next month, but my weight I can control by my behaviors, exercise, nutrition, et cetera. Creativity is exactly the same. We all have the capacity to expand and build that, that, that skill set and in turn drive the results that we seek. So we have this within us. What do you find is the number one thing that keeps people from being creative? What holds them back? Fear, as mentioned, is a big one. Another one is a belief that I'm not a creative person. I ask people this all the time when I hear that. Well, why do you say that? I can't play an instrument. I'm terrible on a dance floor. But we've seen creative trial lawyers and, you know, salespeople and call centers, people. And, you know, anyways, I think we need to expand what does creativity really look like and mean. I think the other thing is that people lack technique. 
So here's a fun one I, I just discovered. So in 1958, a number of new technologies came on the scene. There was the Rolodex to keep track of your contacts. There was the magnetic tape to store data. The first video came, came out in 1958. And this bold new technology for idea extraction known as brainstorming. Fast forward to 2021. You don't need the Rolodex because you got LinkedIn. You don't need magnetic tape because a thumb drive can store the entire library of Congress. Video games are more realistic than the real thing, but we're still using this outdated technology or technique called brainstorming. And brainstorming is wildly ineffective. And so I think that actually is one big blocker. There's a better approach though. I've actually spent a lot of years, and I cover these in the book too, of coming up with better techniques. Rollstorming, part of the biggest issue is that fear creeps in. In other words, you've been in a brainstorm session, one person shares an idea and everyone else in the room becomes the idea police and tell you all the reasons that it's not gonna work. And so what do we do? We share our safe ideas and hold our crazy ones back. Here's a simple technique that will totally solve it. And I hope people give this a shot. It's called role storming, R-O-L-E. It's simply brainstorming in character. Taking on a real serious business challenge here, it's not goofy, but you are pretending that you are somebody else. So Joe, let's say you're playing the role of Steve Jobs. No one's gonna laugh at Steve for coming up with a big idea. They might laugh at Steve for coming up with a small one. So now you are liberated. You can say anything you want, no fear of retribution. The way it works is really simple. Everybody in the room chooses any character they wanna be, but they have to stay in character. So you could be a supermodel, you could be a sports hero, you could be a, a six-year-old kid, you could be an alien from the future, whatever. But you stay in character and brainstorm as if you are that person. And real quickly, I did this one time with a group of executives at Sony Japan. I met this guy. He was the stiffest human being I've ever met. Dark suit, white shirt, his tie is strangling him. Anyway, we got him roll storming as Yoda. I've never seen personal transformation like this. This dude's jacket's off, his tie's undone, he's leaping around the room, and the whiteboards were filled with ideas. I didn't teach him to be creative. He had that inside him all along, as did all of us. But he was in a role that forbid it. And with a simple adjustment in technique, he was able to really liberate his creativity. Your role storming concept is a creative one because it does let people take their guard down, right? Again, it's not about them and their own ego or whatnot. It's about somebody else. I'm going to be somebody else. And then that can unlock that. So sometimes just even seeing things from a different perspective can make a huge difference. That's exactly right. I've seen people arms folded, grumpy looking, saying, I can't create an idea if you had tried. And then we give them a new technique and they're like, what? I just came up with all this cool stuff. A couple other fun ones. One is called the bad idea brainstorm. So we're obviously getting together to come up with good ideas, but incrementalism and fear, they hold us back. So this is a two-part exercise. Part number one, set a timer for 10 minutes and brainstorm, not good ideas, but terrible ones. Come up with the worst ideas you can think of. What's unethical and immoral and illegal? Clearly, you're not going to do them. You're just coming up with these ideas. Part two, crucially, is then you examine the bad ideas and say, wait a minute, is there a little nugget in there? Is there a germ of an idea that I could refine and sand off the rough edges and make it a legitimate, appropriate idea? And so what happens is you're pushing your creativity so far beyond the way you would normally think. And yes, you have to bring them back to reality, of course, but it's way better approach than trying to inch your way forward. So jazz has been a huge part of who you are. And so much of jazz is improvisation. How has that impacted your thinking throughout your career? Is that something that's really inspired you in everything that you've done? 100%. I think of myself often as a jazz musician first and a business person second. And in jazz, not everyone has studied it, but basically it's a conversation. So you and I, Joe, we didn't script our conversation today. We're kind of riffing off of each other. That's exactly what jazz is, but with music. 
let's say we were in a jazz combo together and we played the same song every night for 10 years in a row, every night it would be different. And it's influenced based on how we're feeling and what's going on in our own lives, what's going on with the audience, what's going on in the broader world. And we take responsible risks and we're tinkering and exploring. And it's actually a very safe environment. It's funny, if I'm playing jazz and I play it safe, no one's going to like it. But if I take a risk and I hit a clunker bad note, I just play it twice more and call it art. Everything is fine. So kidding aside, it's a very safe environment where people are encouraged. And furthermore, there's a co-creation process. In other words, I might start with an idea and it's not very good, but you pick it up on the bass and you make it better. And someone picks it up on the drums and makes it better. And then the sax player takes it and rips a killer solo to the delight of the audience. Well, who came up with the idea? It was this co-creative process. Anyway, what's happened for me to your question is that jazz has influenced my complete philosophy as a leader. We need to sort of pass the baton of leadership back and forth as opposed to one person standing at the center of the room. We need to be great listeners as much as we're great performers. We need to be good in a supportive role more often than in a soloist role. So I've learned that's been my textbook for sure. And you have to be willing to take risk, which is exactly what you're saying. You have to be willing to be okay hitting the wrong note. And the same thing is true in our lives and our careers and the other things that we're doing. If we're too worried about getting everything right, we may never achieve what really was possible. I've often thought that confidence doesn't come from thinking you're going to be right all the time. Confidence comes from being able to course correct. So I have confidence going on a jazz gig. Full well, I'm going to make a dozen mistakes for sure. Like a hundred percent, I'm going to screw stuff up. But my confidence doesn't come from thinking I'm going to be perfect. It's that I know how to get out of a jam. And that's what I think we need to spend more time teaching ourselves and our team members as leaders and even our kids. So Josh, you've learned an enormous amount over your career. You've achieved great things. As you look back, and if you were to talk to a younger Josh Linkner, a 20-year-old Josh Linkner, what advice might you give yourself? You know, I think early on, I tried to be paternalistic as a leader. I thought, hey, I'll protect people from the bad news. I'll just need to know basis. And I micromanaged. And I think over the years, I've really evolved that dramatically. I would have done it sooner, frankly. I'm totally transparent. I share every number with every team member that I have, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I invite them to co-create this masterpiece with me, as opposed to me telling them where to paint. That's one piece of advice for sure. I think the other one would be, I was always so outcome focused that sometimes I didn't enjoy the process. And I think nowadays the word journey is too overplayed, so I won't necessarily use that word, but I would have enjoyed the process more. So the ideal of art of any type, whether it's music or business, it's not about necessarily the finished product, although that marks the moment, but it's about how you arrived at the finished product. And I think I would have spent more time kind of savoring those moments. And the other thing I would say to myself is that don't feel the highs so high and don't feel the lows so low. So when we want some giant, client as my business. I, you know, it felt like the king of the world. And then when we fell on our face. I felt like, you know, shamed and mortified and humiliated and all that. And I think I would temper my emotions a bit and say to myself, look, there's going to be oscillations in life and business. So savor the moments of the highs, slap high five, spike the ball, but don't get too caught up on yourself. And on those low moments, have a little faith that this too shall pass. And you're going to be able to fight your way out of the trough and ultimately come to a better place. But that's the hardest thing, isn't it? I mean, when you're in that low spot to have that confidence, we have these ups and downs, especially if we look over the past year, if we've got the value of perspective and we've gone through 2001, 2008, 2009, different crises, we're, we're better equipped. How do you encourage someone who hasn't gone through those things? What would you say to someone who's younger about looking forward with positivity and confidence? Excellent question. First thing is people always try to like celebrate failure as if it's fun. Failure stinks. It's not fun. So first of all, let's just recognize that. But that being said, let's also recognize that every person that's achieved anything, 
those that we admire most, if it's business, if it's Elon Musk or whatever, or if it's Beethoven or Gandhi, they didn't get it right every time. Nobody gets it right every time. So when we are having that experience, which again, is not pleasant, we have to recognize that we're not alone in that. And at the same time, then we say, okay, what's the learning opportunity here? One of the topics I cover in the book is I borrowed the phrase from a Japanese proverb. It's called fall seven times, stand eight. Fall seven times, stand eight. And that feels like a pep talk, but I interpret it slightly differently. I think it's a recognition that failures and mistakes and speed bumps and setbacks, those are part of the process. If you're not tripping from time to time, you're not running fast enough. So again, everybody that we admire who's achieved anything has done it. So when we do it, let's not beat ourselves up too much. Let's extend ourselves the same compassion that we would a dear friend. I mean, that's one of the things too. We don't extend that compassion to ourselves, right? We judge ourselves. We're unforgiving for ourselves. That's also, it seems like a key ingredient, both to creativity, being willing to take that risk, as well as to our own growth. That's exactly right. First, you know, learn from those mistakes. Realize that mistakes are often the portals of discovery. If we have to pay in blood, sweat, and tears or money, let's at least extract our education out of that mistake. But the second thing I would say is that it's not dogged persistence. So this fall seven times stand eight concept sort of implies that you just keep get back up and doing the same thing over and over and over again until it works. I interpret it differently, that every time you get back up, try a slight pivot, a different angle. It doesn't have to be dramatic. Try a one degree shift in either direction. So think about like you're trying to crack a safe. You don't just keep trying the same combination. You try something different. And so it's a recognition that we're going to have those setbacks. If you want to achieve victories and successes, we're going to have to tolerate setbacks and mistakes and failures. And then we say, okay, what can we learn from it? And how can we try the next attempt slightly differently? So it's a persistence fused with creativity. It's like creative resilience. So eventually you end up cracking that code. Josh, you're someone who believes in constant improvement. I know you're always working to improve yourself and better yourself, get to that next level. What are some strategies that you use for yourself to improve yourself? I'm a big fan of famous quotes. And one of them is from a guy named General Eric Shinsiki. He says, if you don't like change, you're probably going to like irrelevance even less. So I thought that was kind of a good marker. But I've collected quotes and I display many from famous people. But there's one quote of mine that I've shared fairly frequently. In fact, so much that my people are sick of hearing me say it. The phrase is this, someday a company will come along and put us out of business. So it might as well be us. I say to myself all the time, look, someday someone's going to put you out of business. It might as well be you. And that means that I have to be in a state of ongoing reinvention as opposed to ultimately falling victim and becoming irrelevant. So I literally try to say, all right, what does the Josh of six months from now look like? What's the future Josh going to do to put the current Josh out of business? I live in a state of sort of perennial discomfort and perennial disdain for the status quo. And not that I don't enjoy victories, but I feel like if I'm not the one that's going to put myself out of business, I don't want someone else to do that to me. And I think the way that I generally fuel it, which is why I have so much admiration for you and your organization, is through learning. I'm a learning junkie, man. I just love learning. If someone said, you'll never make another cent again, I would still want to learn hours a day. So I read voraciously. I love listening to podcasts like yours. I just like learning stuff. And to a degree, if you're wrong about something and you learn how to do it right, what a beautiful moment. Like, I just love those aha moments. If I'm going to be remembered at some point, I want to be remembered as a learner, as a creator, and a teacher. That's it. I like learning, I like creating stuff in the middle, and then I like sharing and teaching. Well, when you have that learning mindset, like you've described, that also makes failure something that really is not possible because you can always learn from your experience. You can always get better and improve. The question is, what did I learn in this experience? And that's what I hear you saying. Josh, terrific interview. Any final insights or advice for our audience? Well, I mean, I'd say, first of all, you know, 
congratulations for listening to this podcast and for investing in yourself, whether it's your time or your money. I think there's no better investment that can pay no bigger dividends. You can never lose the investment. Unlike other investments that you can lose, this is a bulletproof investment. So good job doing that. We're all on a path. You listen to podcasts, a guy like me, you're like, oh, he's got to figure it out. And I don't. I don't. I'm still figuring out just like everybody else is. And so wherever you are right now is a great place to be. And that's an opportunity to learn and grow and prosper. And the other things I would just say real quickly is that back to my passion point, you listener are a creative person. It doesn't matter if you're good at drawing or dance, like you're a creative person. And if you develop those skills, which absolutely can be developed, it will help you. It'll be a resource that you can use to drive the results that you care about. So whether you learn that from me or from anybody else, doesn't matter. I just strongly encourage you to think about that as an underutilized asset that can really be helpful in driving the results that you seek. Terrific, Josh. Well, thank you. It's a great message. It's a great way to end the interview. Really appreciate your being with us. I know that the audience is going to love hearing from you today. My pleasure. And thank you for all the amazing work that you and your organization do. As mentioned, I'm a, an ongoing fan, so grateful to be with you. Thanks, Josh. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.